Will you stand with me for the reading of our scripture this morning, please? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you needed or wanted a recommendation? Three verses we'll be reading this morning from Isaiah 45, and Cyrus receives a ringing endorsement. Isaiah says to him and to the people who will be seeing these things unfold, something wonderful will be happening, and it's promised that he will deliver to make the way straight and possible for Cyrus. 45, 1 through 3. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Amen. The word of the Lord. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, Gail. Just a, a, I'm beginning a series uh, this Sunday. I wouldn't say it's on the heels of because um, I preached um, a series from the book of Joshua a while back, if you'll remember that. And uh, if you've done any research, you know that really the name Joshua and the name Jesus are the same name. Joshua is the Hebrew form. Um, well, actually, Yeshua. Um, and Jesus is the Greek form. And basically the name means God is salvation. We know that Joshua was also anointed of God, appointed for a specific task. He was called to lead the people of Israel into Canaan to establish a homeland, a land where God would rule. They were to be God's people. And we know that Joshua did a pretty good job. Um, history followed after that. They didn't do so well. Well, um, Jesus then has a job to do too. It's his job to conquer a land as well. But it's a different land. And we're going to get into that in just a few moments. In this passage today, Isaiah calls Cyrus by name over a century before he was born. Cyrus the conqueror would be God's deliverer for God's people. Or as they were referred to in verse 4, Jacob my servant, Israel my chosen. Now there are two kinds of conquerors. There are those who conquer to dominate, imprison, and enslave. The Roman Empire and Nazi Germany would be examples. There are those who conquer to liberate. The Allied forces in World War II would be an example. 
And I want to just go on a little side trail here this morning before we continue with this passage. You know, Satan has deceived many into believing that Jesus is a conqueror who wants to dominate, imprison, and enslave. Think about that for a minute. Well, you don't want to follow Jesus. He'll take all the fun out of your life. He won't let you do anything. It's like you might as well live in a straitjacket. Do you see what I'm saying? Satan has convinced people that to serve Jesus is some kind of thing that binds you up and makes life miserable. The exact opposite of what the Scripture tells us about those who follow Jesus. Well, Cyrus the Great was the founder of the Persian Empire. He overthrew three other great empires, the Medes, the Lydians, and the Babylonians. And he united most of ancient Middle East into a single strait stretching from India to the Mediterranean Sea. As emperor of Persia, he issued a decree on his aims and policies, later hailed as his Charter of the Rights of Nations. This was known to be the first declaration of human rights. One historian has written, Cyrus was clearly a leader of immense military ability, obviously, if they conquered that kind of a territory. But that was only one facet of the man. More distinctive, perhaps, was the benign character of his rule. He was exceptionally tolerant of local religions and local customs, and he was disinclined to the extreme brutality and cruelty which characterized so many other conquerors. Now maybe that was be, maybe Cyrus was, <clears throat> excuse me was a different kind of conqueror because he was chosen for use by God, or perhaps because of the influence Daniel had on him. We really don't know. Whatever the case, Cyrus the conqueror was a deliverer for Israel and that he freed them from Babylonian captivity and allowed them to return home as recorded in the book of Ezra and referred to in chapter 45 of Isaiah verse 13 if you want to look there. So history then proved Isaiah's prophecy again as he speaks of of Cyrus over a hundred years before he was born, history proved Isaiah's prophecy to be true. That's a good thing. Remember, if what prophets said didn't come true, they were false prophets, and the penalty for that was not pleasant. However, I believe that this passage hearkens to and draws parallels with a conqueror who would bring deliverance and would not be a Persian king. This deliverer who would free the people from their spiritual bondage and the one who held them captive would not come for another 700 years. The territory he came to conquer would not be the hills, plains, and deserts of Israel, but rather the hearts and minds of mankind. He would take back spiritual ground that had been lost to Satan. See, Isaiah 45, this passage that we read today, is not a messianic prophecy. And yet I think we see some very clear parallels in this passage between King Cyrus, who was, who was called to be a physical conqueror, and what Jesus was called to do 
as a spiritual conqueror. Now an interesting point here is something we see right at the beginning of this passage, at the beginning of verse 1. God calls Cyrus his anointed. Now that term was usually applied to patriarchs, priests, or kings. And Cyrus was not a righteous or even monotheistic king, but he was raised up by God, appointed and equipped for a special purpose, that of accomplishing God's will for His people. Now let's look to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 16, Jesus is speaking to Simon and saying basically, who do people say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. That's the Greek word. The Hebrew word would be Messiah. Both meaning anointed one. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of the living God. Folks, when we see Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, we are not seeing Jesus' first and last name. Alright? If Jesus had a last name, it would have been Jesus Bar-Joseph or something like that. Jesus, the son of Joseph. No, we are seeing Jesus, the Anointed One. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Anointed One. He was appointed and equipped for special purpose, that of accomplishing God's will concerning His people. Jesus, the Anointed One, came as a, as a conqueror to deliver and to liberate. And all the people said, that's right, that's what Jesus came to do. So, Jesus as conqueror will, because we're looking ahead, we're drawing parallels from this prophecy in Isaiah. Jesus as conqueror will subdue nations. Psalm Psalm 2, verse 8. This is a Messianic prophecy. And it says, Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is a Messianic prophecy. It is speaking of Jesus. And I think certainly this applies in the sense that God sent Jesus to save the world. All right? In, in the, the Apostle Paul quoting Isaiah in Romans 15 verse 12 says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. Aren't you glad that Jesus came to save all the nations of the world? If he hadn't, we'd be left on the outside. It is God's desire through Jesus Christ that all nations and all peoples will come under His dominion and lordship. That is why we have placed such an emphasis in the Church of the Nazarene since our earliest days as a a denomination on the importance of missions. We believe Jesus came to rule over the nations, to win the world. And we... And we know that there's a day coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
But folks, to subdue nations, you must subdue their rulers. This would be necessary in the physical realm, but it applies in the spiritual realm as well. For Jesus to subdue nations, He would have to subdue the rulers that exist in the spiritual realms. So Jesus will, Jesus as conqueror will disarm kings. Jesus as conqueror will disarm kings. Cyrus would disarm the kings of Lydia, Babylonia, and the Medes. Jesus would disarm, disarm kings as well, but those of a totally different kingdom. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and this is the New King James Version, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, hold on to that word for a minute, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. The dictionary defines principality as the territory or jurisdiction of a prince or the country or nation that gives title to a prince. Jesus came to defeat, to rule over, to conquer principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places. Remember Daniel had prayed a prayer to God and he was waiting on the answer. And the answer didn't come in the time he thought. And eventually, God sends a messenger to bring, bring an answer to Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 10, verses 10, 12 through 13, we find this encounter between Daniel and this messenger. And the messenger says to Daniel, then, well, then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. There's a principality out there with a ruler. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, this is on God's side, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Jesus was going to come to defeat some rulers, some principalities, some powers, some kings, wasn't He? But in a different realm. So when it says in verse 1, to strip kings of their armor, the idea here is to make those kings unfit for battle. You strip them of the armor and weapons that they would use against you. That's what Jesus came to do. Colossians 2.15 tells us what Jesus has done with these spiritual rulers and principalities. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, same word, disarm them, having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now we know that was a, a reference from a Roman victory celebration where when they defeated an army, they led them naked through the streets of Rome, completely stripped of anything they could use to make war. And it says that that's what Jesus did to the enemies in the spiritual realm. (laughs) 
He defeated them. He disarmed them. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus would strip Satan of his armor, the weapons he would use to make war against believers, sin, death, fear, and leave him exposed as powerless against God's people. Remember the, did you ever watch The Wizard of Oz? You know, the old uh, uh, Judy Garland version and, you know, Toto, Kansas with its tornadoes, that stuff. Well, um, she got sucked up. And she ends up in Oz. And she wants to go home to Kansas, which is kind of, anyway. So she wants to go home. Home is home, hey. She wants to go home to Kansas. And to do so, she's got to go to the powerful Oz. Remember that? The Oz can help you get back home. And she goes and they confront the Oz, who's this giant speaking head with this scary voice and smoke and flames and this powerful guy. And then I think the dog runs over to this booth with curtains and we find out it's a guy pulling levers and he has no power at all. That is Satan, folks. Because Jesus has disarmed him. (laughs) He tries to put on this big scary front, you know, with smoke and flames. He's the guy inside pulling the levers. That's all he can do. He tries to pull our levers. He tries to push our buttons. Yeah, Jesus the conqueror will disarm kings. Jesus' as conqueror will open doors and break down gates. Matthew 16.18 And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus speaking. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, for a long time, and I probably shared this with you before, you, with you before I, I kind of thought as, you know, we're, we're trying to prevail against the onslaught of hell. But hey, gates don't onslaught anybody. Gates are a defensive structure. Gates try to keep the bad guys out or the bad guys in or something like that. But the point is, gates do not assail you. You assail gates. And what's it say? What's it say? They shall not prevail against Jesus Christ's church. The church of Jesus Christ has been battering the gates of hell since its inception in the book of Acts. It's been happening. And though we may wonder at times if those gates will ever fall, we are assured in Jesus' words to Peter that there will be a day when the gates of hell will come crashing down in a final victory for Jesus Christ and His church. Oh, we got pretty excited about that, didn't we? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, We're told the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Jesus. Listen. Jesus opens doors and breaks down the gates of the things in our lives that control us 
hold us captive, and keep us from being all that God has designed us to be. It's the lies we believe, the fears that control us, the hurts, habits, and hang-ups that we can't find release from. But Jesus is able to open doors, to break down gates to those strongholds in our lives, and set us free. And every time this occurs, every time that happens, in the life of someone, the gates of hell are assaulted and weakened. Praise God. And think of the doors Jesus opens for those who believe in Him for salvation. He opens the doors of heaven. We talked about that in Sunday school class today. He opens the doors of eternal life. He opens the doors of God's blessing. He opens the doors of fellowship. He opens the doors to the throne room of God's grace, mercy, and love. Jesus opens doors and breaks down gates. And then Jesus as conqueror will level mountains. Now back in Jesus' day, leveling a mountain was a big deal. You know, now we get out earth movers and bulldozers and things like that. Well, yeah, we level mountains. But in Jesus' day, that was a big deal. In In fact, truly leveling a mountain, a true mountain... It didn't happen. They might build things on the mountain. They might take the top off of it and put a city up there. But they didn't level mountains. But it says, Jesus as conqueror will level mountains. Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. In other words, no obstacle will be able to stand in the way of this conqueror, Jesus Christ. No obstacle. Nothing will be able to keep him from completing his mission. Remember all the things that happened to try to keep Jesus from completing his mission? From the time he was born, Herod Herod wanted to kill the babies in, in Bethlehem to make sure that this king would not be raised up. Didn't happen. All through Jesus' life, remember there were times when the crowds wanted to throw him off the cliff and the Pharisees were plotting his death and, and he, he was saved every time because it was all, Jesus' death was only going to happen in God's timing. Every obstacle was removed so that God's mission for Jesus Christ could be fulfilled. The Pharisees and teachers of the law sought to use the law, their interpretation of the law and tradition against Him. But the problem was they were speaking to the person who made the law, who wrote the law, who who wrote the law, spoke the law into existence. How do you argue with that guy? There was the misunderstanding of His own disciples. When Jesus said, I'm going to have to go to the cross, they said, no, 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 don't do that. Jesus said, remember to Peter, stand behind me, Satan. This is God's will for me. And then, coming up to the point of death on a Roman cross, Jesus knew what He was in for. Anybody who lived in Israel in that day and time had seen crucifixions. The Romans had made an evil art out of it. They posted crosses along the roadways so everyone could see when someone broke the law, when there was an insurrection, they would crucify people in mass 
post them along the roadway so everyone could know this is what happens if you rebel against the Roman government. Jesus knew what crucifixion was about. And so in the garden that night, in the garden of Gethsemane, before He went to the cross, He prayed, Oh, Father, if You can take this cup from Me. But then He said, Not My will, but Thine be done. No obstacle stood in the way of Jesus completing His mission. Mountains were leveled. And folks, Jesus has removed obstacles for us. The veil in the temple torn from top to bottom. We are saved by grace, not by works. Jesus removed that barrier. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What can stand against us? And then he goes on later in that chapter in verses 38 and 39. And I think Susan made reference to this in Sunday school class this morning. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Here's Jesus continuing to remove barriers. Neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is still leveling mountains. No who or no what can separate us, can stand against us. And then, Jesus as conqueror will gain treasure hidden in darkness in secret places. I'm going to share with you a bunch of Scripture here. Daniel 2, verse 22. Daniel says, speaking of God, He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with Him. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep deep darkness, a light has dawned. And then John chapter 8, verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then again in John twelve forty six, I have come into the world as light so that no one who believes in Me should stay in darkness. Jesus would not be interested in the same kind of treasure as the Persian King Cyrus would have been interested in. The treasures that Jesus would claim would be Satan's captives bound in darkness of sin and disbelief. People are the treasure that Jesus seeks. 
Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. And later, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Jesus would gain the treasures of darkness hidden in secret places. That which is hidden in the darkness of a person's life. A treasure of potential which only God sees. The light of the world would illuminate the darkness of lives to reveal the riches hidden in those secret places. And I'll tell you, some of, the, some of those hidden riches are the things that Peter talked about in the verse I just gave you. We are a chosen people. Who knows that? We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are God's special possession. God sees in us the potential to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. His chosen people. Aren't you glad that Jesus is a conqueror who came to liberate and deliver? Amen. Let's hear it for Jesus, mighty warrior. Yeah. If I could have those who will serving us be serving us this morning, we're going to be partaking of communion. And gentlemen, if you go ahead and come forward and begin serving the elements. Just a reminder, you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion. Please hold the elements and we will partake together. Paul wrote, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11, these words. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. During the Vietnam War, a young West Point graduate was sent over to lead a group of new recruits into battle. He did his job well trying his best to keep his men from ambush and death. But one night, when they had been under attack, he was unable, unable to get one of his men to safety. The soldier left behind had been severely wounded. From their protective cover, the young lieutenant and his men could hear him crying out in pain. They all knew that any attempt to save him, even if it was successful, would almost certainly mean death for the would-be rescuer. Eventually, the young lieutenant crawled out of hiding toward the dying man. He got, he got to him to safety, but was himself mortally wounded in the effort. 
After the rescued man returned to the States, the lieutenant's parents heard that he was in their vicinity. Wanting to know this young man, whose life was spared at such a great cost to them, they invited him to dinner. When their honored guest arrived, he was obviously drunk. He was rowdy and obnoxious. He told off-color jokes and showed no gratitude for the sacrifice of the man who had died to save him. The grieving parents did the best they could to make the man's visit worthwhile, but their efforts were unrewarded. Their guest finally left. As the dad closed the door behind him, the mother collapsed in tears and cried. To think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. Folks, that's exactly what the father who sent his son Jesus could have thought about us. Jesus was born in the flesh of humanity knowing that he would face a death on a cross for ungodly people who were like sheep gone astray. The passage from Romans from Romans that I read moments ago reminds us that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Obnoxious, ungrateful, God's precious Son died for somebody like that. He left the safety of heaven to rescue us who are as good as dead in our sins and trespasses, and he did it at the cost of his own life. Philippians 2, 6-8, speaking of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross.